Well, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 14. We'll finish the rest of this chapter today. Genesis chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse 17. It says, Then after his return from the defeat of Ketalomar, the king and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a he was the priest of Most High, or God Most High, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abraham of." God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a, a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you will say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the, young, of the men who went out with me, Edner, Eshcol, and Memory. Let them take their share. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. What a precious thing that it is. Thank you, Lord, that it guides our life. It's nourishment for our spiritual souls. May we be filled today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First reading, it would be easy to, to misunderstand this passage and see Abraham's uh, Abraham's. Uh, a response here is an overreaction, but we want to understand this this passage, and we want to understand it in its context. And there's a few things that that I think you need to understand, you need to grasp before we get into this text. And I want to kind of lay these things out for you. There's a few things here. Number one, there's a this passage is is a about conflict. It, it is. It is a, a contrast here. You, you have two kings, two very different worldviews coming to clash here. So this is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual clash that's going on here. And God's children have always been in spiritual battles. They will always be in spiritual battles until the Lord comes. Uh, there's always that battle over good and evil where... A clash of ideas. It's a theological clash. And when people come together, they have strong theological views, tempers are going to flare, feelings are going to get hurt, sparks are going to, to fly, sharp words are going to just happen. And in this passage, this passage is one of those moments. That's, that's what you see. And you have to just face that reality. You just have to know this is two swords clashing, spiritual swords, completely different worldviews, and sparks are going to fly. 
Number two, another thing that we need to know here to understand the significance of this passage, you need to understand the time frame. You need to understand when this passage, uh, when this was taking place. This was in Job's time. And you need to think about that. And this was in the patriarchal days. This would be three or four hundred years before Moses. This was before any of this was written. This was before Israel was a nation, before uh, the law, before the Ten Commandments, before the sacrificial system. Any of that that we would know of of the the more formal Christian traditional uh, uh, religion. But this was a religion. This was you. You see that there's a, a priest here of the Most High God. You see Abram giving a. Um, a tenth of, of what he has received to the Most High God. And it's just a reminder that God has always had His remnant. And God will always have those small group of people that are His. And He's had that since the beginning of time, even before Abraham's day or Abram's day. And uh, all, all through that time, there's a, a remnant. And because of that, the spiritual battle is going to be there and you have this spiritual clash. Now... Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that the spiritual battle is always fought really on a heart level. It's always on a heart level. And it, and it can seem just like drama, almost petty, overreaction kind of thing. Um, but Solomon had it right out of the, the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the, the issues of life flow. And this is one of those issues of life kind of things. And it, and, and it's, you know, like I say, it's drama. It's the best way to, to explain that is, is kind of these things clash because of, because of the drama, the things that are going on in the emotional, the spiritual tone that's being set here. Now, Hallmark does drama well. I mean, they've got that down. It, it really is amazing to me. They can take the most subtle of feelings, the most kind of, uh, nebulous of, of ideas and just, man, just milk it for all it's worth and, and bring you a whole hour and a half program over it. So they do drama well. And, and there's always a conclusion at the end. Somebody's getting married or, you know, something like that. They do drama well. But this is spiritual drama. And you have to know that. You have to understand that from a biblical standpoint, spiritual drama is oil and water. And... They don't mix. There's really no no conclusion here. And I have to remind us the clarity of the New Testament explains these things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, Do not be bound together with unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? So you have righteousness on one side, lawlessness on the other side. There's a clash there. What fellowship has light and darkness? None. What harmony has Christ with Belial? That's Satan himself. What uh, has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. See, you have this battle, you have this clash, and, and there's, there's not going to be, it's not going to be resolved. It's just going to be ongoing, and it and it seems to be a petty drama, but it's it's not. These are issues of the heart. These are major issues. Um, 
Now, today we see a, a church, a Christianity that that wants to minimize the difference between the world and the church. They don't want to see any kind of class. They don't want to see. They just want to get along. Can't everybody just get along? But I tell you, the more I study scripture, the more I see there's a drastic difference. There's a, a major difference. The size of the Grand Canyon difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Now, the thing is, in Scripture, what you see is this this gap can grow between the believer and the unbeliever. And there's two major factors, two reasons for this gap to, to get widened. For one thing, the, the closer we live to God, the closer we become to God, that gap is going to widen. There's there's some natural differences between uh, the believer and unbeliever. We have a changed heart. That's going to be a difference. There's a hope there. There's a joy that that is just unexplainable, a peace that that passes all understanding. There's a stability in that life that's because of the heart change. There's a, a whole different belief system that includes God. Instead of excluding God, there's a the, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. The, the Holy Spirit lives inside the believer. There's a there's a pursuit of righteousness in the believer's life, not perfection, just righteousness, God's righteousness. There's we have a, a heavenly father that answers our prayers. The focus of our life is the glory of God. We love Christ and our desire is to please him. We base our life on the on the wisdom of God's word and the reality that that is to real life that that God created the same God that created real life created or, or spoke to us the written word and so that brings a stability to our life uh, an anchor for the soul we're not tossed to and fro we're not we're not tossed about. With every wind of doctrine, Paul would say. But the main thing, the main difference goes back to the heart. And that heart, that mind is being renewed constantly. And the, and the more it's renewed, uh, the closer we are to, to God and that gap widens between us and the world. The more we think like God, that gap, that gap widens. But there's also another element here. We have to consider the more that a culture buys into a philosophy that excludes God. So, so we're becoming more like God. If the culture is becoming less and less like God, they, they buy into uh, a philosophy that that doesn't that doesn't include God. They exclude uh, his word, biblical truth, biblical principles they exclude godly thinking from their life, the further and further they're going to get away from God, the further and further they should get away from the church. And that's that gap is going to widen. That gap is going to widen. Now, we kind of see this in a couple of passages. I'll, I'll show you. Um, in the book of Proverbs, there's, there's this naive guy, the young guy. He, he hasn't had his... Um, uh, worldview developed yet he's kind of a we would call him a newbie he's just a little a little bit it doesn't have full understanding a full uh, belief system yet a worldview and he's naive a simpleton we might say and so solomon is wanting to inform this guy 
And we see it laid out in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1. There's a verse that I want you to uh, see there, Psalm 1. Because there's three elements here that I want you to see. And this seems to be a progression here that the world takes. Psalm 1, chapter 1, verse 1, talks about those who are walking in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, So you have the wicked over here, and they're advising. And they're maybe advising the, the newbies, the, those who haven't developed a, a worldview that excludes God yet. They're, they're uh, advising them, they're counseling them, and these newbies, they're walking in their way. They're just puppets. They're just doing what they are told to do. But then you see the next step is they stand in the path of sinners. So then you have people that are listening. Those, those newbies, they're beginning to hear and pick up on things and, and begin to reason and flesh out a life that excludes God. A life of self, pursuing sin, pursuing sinners, pursuing sinfulness. And then the third step is that they sit in the seat of the scoffer. You, you have those who are then pulling the, the strings over here. These wicked who have uh, thought out a worldview that excludes God. They've dug in their heels. Their hearts are hardened. And they see life as essentially meaningless. And re, they can reinterpret it however they want to. They're cynics. And, and they're essentially rank pagans, and, and they're they're advising everybody else. They're they're scoffers. They're scoffers of Christians, and this is why Christians can can be persecuted or assured of persecution because there's always going to be those. Now, here's the thing: we have a a world today. The church is is saying, shouldn't we be like the world to win the world? Shouldn't shouldn't we cozy up to the world so that we can just kind of slide them over into the kingdom? And the answer is absolutely not. No, is what we we stand for truth. We live out that truth. We proclaim that truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we let that work on the world. It's not our strategy in trying to win the world. It's the gospel. And we, we dare not minimize the power of the gospel in the world's life, in the people's life. That's the biggest weapon that the Christian has, is the gospel. Not our strategy to win the world, cozy up to the world. No, the sharp contrast is just going to be there. The thing that has to cross that, that divide is the gospel. Is the gospel. We need to keep that in mind. We need to keep that in mind. The world might adapt to Christian principles. They might come closer to us and maybe we would see that. Or it might be the opposite. They might, they might persecute us. Two options there. Now, last week we began to see that Abraham stepped up and he had to go out and rescue his, his nephew Lot. Abraham didn't, didn't even hesitate. He brought his army together of 318 men. He goes out. Uh, and the odds were not in his favor, but he conquers four kings. Four kings that had already conquered five kings. They had shown their power. And so Abraham is the hero now, and rightfully so. He did an incredible job, incredible thing here. Now you would expect to see pride in Abraham's life. Uh, but what you see is is humility. And we see 
a man of, of character and strength, a man who has put his faith and trust in the, in the true and living God. And this is a, a significant story to the nation of Israel. Because that should set the tone. That should be their character. This strength of, of character and faith in God. This quiet confidence. This humility and confidence in, in God. And it's not filled with pride at all. It's filled with humility. And in this passage that we see today then, Abraham is on his way from that victory, that great victory. And people, of course, are, are running out to meet them. And um, running out to meet them. And, of course, it's a time of celebration. They're welcoming the, those who have been captured, kidnapped, and taken away. They're welcoming them, them back. They're attending to uh, nursing the wounds of the, the wounded. And so there's a, a lot of excitement going on here. And that's the, the passage that, uh, that we see. But this passage really answers the question, why did Abraham do what he did? Why did Abraham leave and, and risk everything to go and, and, uh, and rescue Lot? Does it just show his own strength? Was it just his own might? His, his power went and threw his weight around? Was it pride? In that kind of way? Was he dependent upon God? Or was he dependent upon these 318 trained forcemen? These trained men? What was his motive? That's the question. What was his motive? Was it the money? Was it the fame? Was he doing some political jostling here? Maneuvering for control over the land? What was going on here? And what we see is that Abraham had a, a humble confidence in God. A humble confidence in God. Now I want you to see, there's, the passage will be divided up into two sections here. You see uh, two very, very different kings. And then you see Abraham's response to those very, very different kings. Now these two kings, they go out to visit Abram uh, as he's on his way back. Look at verse 17. We'll look at the first king, king of Sodom. Verse 17, then after his return from the defeat of Ketalomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom. Now, stop there for just a second. The king of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the wicked city that eventually in, in chapter 19, God is going to have to destroy, send fire down from heaven and destroy that city. A very wicked city known for its sexual immorality. Um, that was this king. Now, he had already suffered defeat. He, he had to run. He fell into the tar pits. Or it could have been a, a different king. If that king had uh, died, then they appointed another king. And now he's representing uh, this, this group. And he goes out. And it seems like a, a, a show of appreciation. Um, he says, and he went out to meet him in the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. Now that would have been west, or I'm sorry, east on the right side of the Jordan River. In fact, it would have been part of the king's highway that would come up from the north all the way down and eventually go down to Egypt. Uh, and he goes out to meet them because that's where, that's the way they would be coming down from the north. And beautiful area. They, they, he meets them out there. Uh, uh, 
But this was a, a very ungodly king. Ungodly city. An ungodly king. In verse 21, we see what he says. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. You say, well, that, that sounds like a, that sounds like a, uh, just a, a show of gratitude here. But it's actually, it's kind of grandstanding. Uh, what we see is, uh, by Abraham's reaction, in fact, we don't know the tone that, uh, Sodom said these, uh, the king of Sodom said these things, but we do know Abraham's reaction to that, and we'll look at that in just a minute. That this, this sounds like this is a, a done with, with pride. I mean, he really doesn't have control over these possessions. These are not his possessions to just give out, to give away. But he's speaking on behalf of the people. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. Um, and he wants these people, Abraham, you can, you can take the, the stuff, the goods, but just give me the people. Now, why is that important? Because he is the king, right? They submit to him. Without the people, he's not a king anymore. He just has stuff. And what you see is we begin to see pride here. And this pride has inflamed his heart. His, it has an overinflated view of his, his self and his importance. And his pride has kind of blinded him. He's just full of self. Completely independent of God. He's just still looking at the the material aspects here. None of what God is doing. And he says, Abraham, you, you give me the people and you take the stuff. Now, the implications here is that's what Abraham wanted. In fact, Abraham, we all know that that's why you went out there is to, to get this stuff, to, to make yourself rich. That's why you did this. And he's calling Abraham's motives into question here is Abraham's motives are impure. In fact, the king's probably his motives are probably impure. He's reading that into Abraham's uh, he's reading that whole philosophy into Abraham's uh, motives here. So that's the first king. Second king is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, and you see this in verse 18. So that's the first king. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came out, or brought out bread and wine. Now, let's just stop there for a second. This is the king of Salem. Uh, they, some say that this is short for Jerusalem. Uh, Salem could be sure, or could be a, a, another way of saying shalom, and that would be peace, or Jerusalem. Uh, and, but he was the king of that city, and it was not the city that we would know today, but he was, he was the, the king of that city. And he brought out bread and wine. This is a time for celebration. He's wanting to minister to these people, and he, and he comes out and he meets Abraham. Now, here's, here's, the, the, here's the key thing. It says, now, in verse 18, now he was a priest of God Most High. And that's so interesting. That should just catch our attention. We would think, oh, Abraham was the only one that's serving God. No, there was others. In fact, there was a priest. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blesses him, blesses Abraham and says, blessed be Abram of God Most High. Or the... A servant, we could throw that in, a servant of God Most High. He's serving, he's serving the Most High God here, possessor of heaven and earth. And the word possessor there 
implies the Creator. It's His by creation. It's His by because He owns heaven and earth. He is the King over everyone, possessor of heaven and earth, and He blessed Him, blessed and blessed be God Most High, who is who has delivered your enemy into your hand. And this is part of, of we see where Abraham's. Uh, humility is. He's recognizing, and this, this king is recognizing that it wasn't that Abraham did this great thing. This was a work of God. And we'll see Abraham uh, acknowledged this. But notice, I want to go back for a second. We hear this phrase, God most high, several times. Now, there's two parts to that. The word God there, it's kind of a generic word for God, El. And, uh, we see that the term here is El Elyon. But this is just the word El, the God. And then you add a, an adjective to that, El Elyon. The adjective would be the Elyon. And, and it points out an attribute uh, that describes a characteristic of God, part of his nature. And we see on the, the flag over here, El Shaddai. That's one of those things. And so we see in Genesis chapter 16... We can see, I think I have some of those. Genesis chapter 16, we, we see uh, El Roy, that God is the God that sees. So it's an attribute of, of God is that he sees. And actually, uh, some have interpreted that as he's a shepherd. He's, he watches over us. And that's a good interpretation. Or El Shaddai, the God Almighty, or El Elom in uh, Genesis chapter 21, verse 22. Uh, 33, uh, the everlasting God. But this is El Elyon. This is God most high. There is no God higher than this. You can't, you can't get any higher. He's the supreme God. The greatest of all the gods. The greatest God. And, and Melchizedek is the priest of this God. He's not a, a pagan priest that you would expect. Not a, a priest of the Canaanite gods. No, this is the... God of God, he's a priest of God Most High, representing God. Maybe the senior saint in that area. Maybe the uh, he was obviously the king. And God has his remnant, this small group, and 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 he is a priest to this God. And in fact, he is a very good priest. In fact, he sets the the tone for all of the the different priests. And we see that in Psalm chapter one four uh, one ten. Verse 4, that he was to be the example, to be the model for all of the Levitical priests that were to come in uh, when the nation of Israel was established. He was a model priest. He was a stereotype of, of the kind of priest that God wanted. In fact, he, he established his own order. That order would have been outside of, of Israel. In fact, what we see in in the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 and 6, that, that Christ was of the order of Melchizedek. Same king. The order of Melchizedek. Outside of the order, Levitical order, he was the order of Melchizedek. And he was a good priest. In fact, Christ was Christ is the epitome of a good priest. Representing God for us, isn't he? So, so this priest then blesses God and says, or blesses Abraham and, and recognizing God's, God's blessing upon Abraham, God most high. And this is where you begin to see Abraham's 
uh, humility here. Now, so you have two different kings. Two different kings. King of Sodom and the king of Salem. One is the servant of self. The other is the servant of God. One wants his people back. Saying, Abraham, you can keep your stuff. Keep this stuff. I won't impose on that, but I, I want my people back. And the other, Melchizedek, he is just underlining the fact that, that Abram's, he was recognizing the fact that Abram's uh, victory was reliant upon God, God Most High. It wasn't a military victory. It was, it was, that was part of it. Abraham actually had to get up and, and do something, but Abram was very dependent upon that God. And there's humility there. Was it God or was it Abram? We would ask that question today. Uh, it, it, was, it was God working through Abram to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. Abram had to get up. He had to act. He had to, to move forward. These men had to go into battle. They had to fight. Maybe some were killed. Some were wounded. It was a hard battle. It wouldn't have been a battle. But God gave the victory. It was a God thing. This is a miraculous work here. That's what's being said. And, and we can compare that to the Christian life, can't we? And we, uh, you know, who, who lives our life? Who lives the Christian life in our life? Is it God or is it us? Well, it's God working through us, isn't it? That we, we get up in the morning and you just say, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't do this. And you'd be right. It's God working through you that does this. It's, it's our humility that gives God the opportunity then to work and show Himself mighty and show Himself great to, to get out of bed and just, just act and allow God to work through us. That's the Christian life. That's what Abraham was doing here. And he then gives credit to, to God. And we'll see that. So you have two kings, one focused on self, one focused on God. Let's look at the two different responses from Abram. Now, this is where it gets good. This is where it's interesting because you have a one positive response and one negative response. Look at verse 20. At the end of uh, verse 20, you see the response to King of uh, Melchizedek, King of Salem, and he give, gave him a tenth. So this is Abram's response to this king, uh, to this priest of the Most High God, was to give him a tenth of of all that uh, had Abraham had taken, and that's a that was a, a duty, a religious duty that Abraham performed there as a, a tenth, just like there would have been an offering taken. Uh, he would have just given him a tenth. That's he took the the tenth right off the top, gave that to the Lord. And again, I think that's recognition that God is the one who gave Abram the victory. This is the humility part and, uh, that Abraham that we see in Abram, recognizing that Abraham did not do this, but God did this. It's humility. It's a religious thing. It's a religious duty that he he gave. And that's really interesting to me because Abraham has a has a personal relationship with God. But that wasn't enough. We have, this is Abraham. Remember, God comes and speaks to Abraham. But he still, he, he gives cadence and credence to, to this priest. And he gives a tithe. Now, just keep that in mind. This is a positive response. Because they're friends. 
They're on the same side, spiritually on the same side, fighting the same battle. They have the same values. Abram and this king, king of Salem, this Melchizedek. They have the same judgments. They have the same kind of worldview. They have the same enemies. They have the same God. Abraham probably loved this guy. It was like seeing a brother coming back from this war. and he probably, They probably embraced. They probably loved one another. Although Abraham lived uh, 300 years before the Mosaic Law, before the system, Abram did his duty in giving to the Lord. And there was a constant... What you see is uh, Abram's heart was for the Lord. Even, even though he was... Even though he was personally close to the Lord, he gave ties to the Lord. You, you see that he is acting on impulse of what we would see today as just giving to the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing to see. So we see a, a close relationship here. And he is, in doing so, he is standing for God. Personal relationship with God, but he's standing for God. Now, we see this today, and I, I, I want to try to explain this. Because we have a Christianity today that's kind of been hijacked. It's a Christianity today you, you kind of almost want to disassociate with. You say, that's not the Christianity of the, of the Scripture. But yet we have to associate with it. I have my own personal relationship with, with God. That's, that's kind of a, a secret thing. It's my devotional with God, my personal uh, interaction with God. But I'm also part of a, a bigger picture here. I'm part of the body of Christ. And, and I can't just have my personal relationship and never be a part of that body. You have to be a part of that body. Uh, th- that, was, that was Abraham. Abram. He had his personal relationship with God. He knew what God was going on, he, God was doing in his own life, but he, he was also part of that larger picture. I don't know what it was called back then, pre Israel. It's like being part of an army and not putting on the uniform. You have to stand. You have to put on the uniform. You have to be a part of that that body. It it may be, some of it may be corrupt. Some of it may be hypocritical. Some of it may be uh, just stuff you don't want to associate with, but you you have to put on the uniform and be a part of the body of Christ. We disassociate ourselves with some of those those things, but we stand for Christ. That's what was going on here. Abraham is part part of that. And he wanted to give credence to this right king, to the right king. Now we turn to the king of Sodom. Look at this. This is a negative response. And we see this in verse verse 22. Then Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That's the same God that Melchizedek was serving. But Abram adds something that's, that's interesting here. He says, Lord God. Now that's, that's something that God had revealed to Abram himself. That's God's personal name here. That, that's his, that's Yahweh. Yahweh El Elyon. God or Lord God Most High. God Most High. 
So this is, this is Abraham pulling these things together. He is identifying with this, this rightful king, this priest of the Most High God. And he says, he acknowledges God is the possessor or the, the creator of the heavens and earth. It's all his. And he says, this word sworn, I swore, he, literally, I raised my hand. <laughs> I raised my hand. And what you see here is a, a pre-planned, this is a, a decision that Abram made. He had thought this thing through. He kind of anticipated, here's what's going to happen. He understood the, the thinking of this king. He, he understood the, the lure, the pull that this king was going to have on him. The request, all of these things. He kind of anticipated, and we would call it this political game. And Abram, Abram swore, I, he swore to God. He said, I will not, I will not enter into these political maneuvering, political games. He says, I, I, I was, I'm not going to allow you to take any kind of credit for what God has done. And you see, uh, the hairs on the back of Abram's head kind of raise up. We have a dog. We had a dog before Christopher took her, but we had walked this dog. And most of the time, he would get along fine with other dogs. See the other dog, there's no problem. But there's one or two dogs in the neighborhood. Man, it would just right on the back of his, the back spine, his hair, her hair would raise up. And you, you could see that. And I don't know what it was about this other dog. But Abraham, just sparks were flying. Emotions were, were uh, being raised here. Abraham's motives were being questioned. And there's a clash here. This king seems to be wanting to take credit for something that God is is doing. And Abraham has to correct that. He says, no, I'm not going to allow you to, to get away with that. And in fact, I knew that you were going to do this. And so I swore to God before this thing happened that you were I was not going to take anything from you. And he goes on to say, I, I like what he says. He just lays it out very clearly that I would not that I would not take a thread, and that's specific, or a, a sandal thong, or anything that is yours, for fear, here it is, for fear you would say, I have made Abraham rich. You're not going to take the credit for something that God is supposed to be doing. If you look over to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God promised Abraham and God says, I will make your name great, I will bless you, I will make your name uh, uh, I will make you a great nation. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now, this should have been a warning, really, to this king of Sodom. And Abraham anticipated this and he planned this out. He knew what was going to happen. He says, no, I'm not going to enter into that that game. You taking credit. It's a, just this political maneuvering over these things. And you can hear the spiritual overtones that were here. This wasn't just a, a petty little thing. No, this is this was major. And Abraham was taking his stand. He was standing his ground, if you will. Will Abraham did not want this king to take any credit for what God was doing in his life. So Abraham rejected his offer. This kind of grandstanding from this king. This political maneuvering from this from this king and. Abraham said, I, I, will not, I will have nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. 
And Abraham affirms then his dependence upon God, not any kind of human king. And what we see there is humility. Abraham's saying, I did not do this. I did not go out to, to conquer so that I can be rich. No, not at all. We see hum- humility and dependence upon the God who owns everything. And so the king and, and Abraham or Abram are miles apart, aren't they? And they, they, they come together, they, they agree on a, a little bit of things, just the material things, but spiritually, man, they're way, way apart. Abraham is close to God. This king is far from God. Probably doesn't even understand what Abraham's talking about. You know, it, it seems to be an overreaction. So it seems to be drama, maybe, from this king. And that's kind of what you see. It's kind of the, the distinction we see in the world that we have today. We, have, we just have this wide gap. Two completely different worldviews, and sometimes they, they clash. Now, Abram goes on to say, he said, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten, verse 24, and the share of the men who went with me, that is, Anor, Eskol, and Memory. Let them take their share. No, I'm not going to play this game. You, you deal with them. If you want to give anything to them, that's fine. Uh, but, but as for me, I'm not going to take any of that. Now, you have two different, two different views here. The king of Sodom, his worldview seems to be dominant. It seems to be control and conquest and victory. And he respected Abram, at least in part, for, for being able to conquer. And he values pride. But he doesn't see humility and, and he doesn't uh, quite probably know what to think about this humility that he sees in Abram's life. And Abraham's a model here. In fact, the world and this guy probably saw Abram's weak, meek, uh, humility as, as weakness. That's kind of the way the world works. It's just pride is elevated. Pride is a virtue as opposed to humility being a virtue. And today we see, and in, in that day I'm sure it's the same way, as everything is done by force. You have, to have, you have to get out there and scream so your voice can be heard. You want your rights. You, you want to dominate. You want to be in charge. You're seeking to, rec- to, to get recognition. And that's just pride. Now here's the problem. I see the church playing that same kind of game. The church playing in the world's arena with that same kind of mentality. No humility, no faith in God. In fact, just the opposite. It's, it's pride, it's dominance. And it's, that's just not, it's not what you see in Abraham's day. It's not what you see in Christ. It's not what you see in Scripture at, at all. We don't depend upon pride, puffing ourselves up. In fact, our, our day seems to be preoccupied with self, self-esteem, self-love, self-glorification. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that will completely destroy a society. It just will. Relationships cannot stand when pride is there. The other person, relationships will just crumble. Friendships and marriages and families, they will fall apart when pride is involved, when pride is, is run amok. But that's the, that's the whole world view that we, we see that being promoted today. Not humility. Not a, a dependence on God. Not a faith in God. 
But, but pride, in, in fact, to play that game, Christians have to enter into that. And I think that this story should be a, 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 just a wake-up call for us. You know what? We can quietly depend upon the Lord Most High. He is the possessor. He is the owner, the creator of the heavens and earth. So, folks, if we are close to the Lord and the world is farther and farther from the Lord, close to the Lord, farther and further from the Lord, then every little thing is going to seem like dramas. Every little thing is going to be a spark because we have such completely different worldviews. And the world's going to look at us as silly, foolish, maybe even as failures, but we have to stand. Abraham just stood. He gave credence, credence to the Lord. We have to stand. We have to stand for truth. We have to allow that truth to be lived out in our life. And we have to proclaim that truth. That's what's going to win the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. We seek to glorify God with our lives. A humble confidence or faith in God. And that's what we see in Abraham. There's going to be a difference between us. There should be a difference between us. But in that difference, what we can see is the power of the gospel when it, when it does work. When someone is converted. Abraham is the perfect example of that. He just stood his ground. I'm not going to play that game. I, I swear to God I was not going to play that game. Didn't enter into that game. Trusted the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to learn to stand in a day that, in a day that Christians are falling, in a day that compromises the the word of the day, in a day that everybody wants to be friendship friends with the world, in a day that that Christianity doesn't even look like Christianity anymore. Lord, help us to stand. Help us to know the truth. Stand for truth. Live that truth out in our lives so that the world can see that. And the Lord, give us the boldness to, to proclaim that truth, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would work through your gospel mightily, that you would build your kingdom and use us. And Lord, I pray that we would have a, a confidence, a humble confidence in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.